previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Quickest way to know yourself is to get burned, right? I see a lot of new problems arising because of convergence of the existing problems we never took care of. If you're gonna get hacked, that's how you're gonna get hacked, right? You're gonna get hacked by someone clicking a link. Well, I broke into the entire organization and took them over before lunch because their CEO is using a password of season and year. And it requires people addressing and kind of diving in and trying to learn these new technologies. You can't look at, uh, at your operating system as a political or religious calling. It is merely a collection of tools, right? This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged and need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned and that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time was the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Check them out by visiting axonius.com. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this episode. As you know, this season is themed Know Thyself. And when we've been thinking about this theme, we've thought of fundamentals, the essentials, but what about the story behind it all? We've brought in an expert storyteller, Kevin Allison, and he's founded a school for storytelling. In this episode, we speak to Kevin about the fundamentals of telling stories, some of the interesting stories that he's experienced and shared, and also some tools that might help you tell a better story. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, repping Hacker Valley Blue themed Know Thyself. Each season of Hacker Valley Blue and Red, we bring in a guest from outside of cybersecurity to help us transcend beyond just the bits and the bytes. Our guest this season is Kevin Allison. Kevin founded and owns The Story Studio. He's the author of Risk, True Stories People Never Thought They Dare to Share, and the host of The Risk Podcast. Besides all these accolades, Kevin is also my storytelling coach, who I greatly appreciate. Kevin, it's always a pleasure to speak, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Kevin, Ron's been telling me so much about you. I've been listening to your podcast. I've been watching your stand-up comedy. I've been listening to you on other podcasts. Uh, but for the folks out there that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. I got my start. I went to NYU for college and met a bunch of folks there who I started a, a sketch comedy group with called The State. 
the state got a show on MTV immediately after we graduated from college. And in the years that followed the group breaking up, it was all this sketch comedy we were doing. I, I was basically playing all these crazy, kooky characters on stage. So in the 12 years after the group broke up, I was trying to continue to do that alone, just getting up on stage like Andy Kaufman or something and playing strange characters. But it wasn't clicking as much. So I, I did a solo show in 2008 of a bunch of these characters and one of the members of the state, Michael Ian Black, came to see the show. And afterwards, he said to me, Kevin, I, I really kind of wish you had just told your own true stories up there. I, I think you're more interesting than some of these characters you came up with. And I said, oh, man, I just feel like, you know, there's so many parts of me that are so weird or hard to explain or just like, I don't know, might not be marketable. So I feel like that's too risky. And he said, cling to that word, you know, like, <laughs> like if you get up on stage and you feel like, oh my God, I'm kind of like taking a risk here. I'm kind of revealing stuff about myself here. He said, then the audience is going to open up to you because you're opening up to them. So I thought, oh man, okay. Uh, what's the riskiest story I could tell in front of an audience? And I realized, oh my God, in my early 20s, I had tried to be a hustler. I had tried like to be like a male prostitute for like one weekend. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, that is the riskiest story I think I could possibly <laughs> share in front of an audience. I mean, the, the story itself is just a comedy of errors. You know, it's not like it's not like a, like a dark, like midnight cowboy. It's <laughs> right. more like kid who doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So I did. I told that story in front of an audience and I was so nervous. I was terrified because it felt so risky. But every time I got to a point in the story where I was like, oh, man, this part is going to sound too Midwestern or, oh, man, my corniness comes out here. They're not going to like that. Or, oh, geez, this part's too gay or whatever it is. They just kept leaning forward more like, wow, this guy is really being himself and he's really revealing himself. So that night I was like, wow, I, I was just electrified by that connection with the audience that I hadn't been experienced by doing strange characters on stage. So I walked away from that show and I thought, I I've got to create a show where people take a risk. People come out about something uh, whether it be funny or scary or beautiful or bizarre, but, but they share something that they might normally only share with a therapist that has happened to them in their life, and I'll call the show Risk. And that was the beginning of my really embracing this whole true storytelling thing. And I realized right away that oh, there was the moth out there or well-established NPR shows like this American life that had their own like narrative bent. But I also realized, oh, I have a special niche here. I can have a show that's totally uncensored and where people can t tell stories that they can't play on national public radio. So that's how Risk started. And in the process of creating it, there was all this coaching of the storytellers to do behind the scenes 
So that inspired me to start the story studio, my school. So that's the that's how I got to where I am today. That is such an awesome origin story. But I think that as you were exploring the stories that you have in your own life, I'm sure you even tapped into some stories from childhood. Your love of storytelling, whether it's through improv or comedy or coaching other people, would you say that your love of stories really started much earlier in your life, like when you were a kid? And, and what was that first story that sort of inspired you to go down this path? Oh, my gosh. This is so funny. In the course of creating risk, and I'm sure you guys have had this very similar sort of experience in your own careers, but in the course of creating it, I realized, oh my gosh, when I was a kid, I used to make all these Radio Shack tape recorder recordings <laughs> of like <laughs> me telling stories, me making prank phone calls and all this stuff. It, you, I can look back now and see how, oh my gosh, I, I put on plays when I was a kid in the fifth grade and just put it together with the homeroom. Like I see all these little ways that I was developing skills along the way that all added up to what I do now. Yeah, I, I told a story on Risk recently about how when I was in the sixth grade, uh, I got this ring stuck on my finger and my finger started turning blue. And uh, I called my mom and she said, Oh my gosh, we're going to have to rush you to the hospital. You know, that, that might have to be amputated or something like that. We were freaking out. And then we were, were very, very, very Catholic family. Before she hung up the phone, my mom said, uh, wait, 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 did you pray? <laughs> so I said a little prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and lo and behold, the ring came off. And the next, <laughs> the next week, the nuns at school announced, oh, there's a, a storytelling contest. Uh, write a little essay about how you feel about Mary. So I wrote my little story, and the, the head nun at the school, the principal, was like, she just loved that essay. She was like, I want you to tell this in front of the whole school. And looking back now, I realized, oh, my gosh, that was that was like kind of the first time I told a true story in front of a big group of people. And it really did kind of kick off this process of me realizing I love to do that. I feel like if a lot of students heard that, hey, you're going to tell this in front of the whole school, they might be like, oh, no. <laughs> what was yeah. it like for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, another thing that's really funny about that is... It was also my first experience of noticing how we have a tendency to either, well, we, we forget some parts of what, we, what we've lived through. So we fill in some of those blanks, but other times we just feel like fudging the details a little bit. So, you know, I was like, oh man, I don't want to admit to everyone that I was putting on my sister's ring because that sounds so quote unquote gay. You know what I mean? Like, mm. <laughs> so I changed it to like, I, I got my finger stuck on a hole in the wall or something like that. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it is funny to look back at like w when we coach stories for risk and whenever we get a feel that someone's being a little like uh, hedging or, or something feels a little off about the story. We'll kind of poke and prod at them. And sometimes it turns out that they are fudging the truth a little bit. And sometimes it's like, oh, okay, it's okay to fudge the truth about that because it does make it make more emotional sense to just skip that complicated detail. But other times 
you realize, oh, this person's avoiding telling that part of the story because it feels a little awkward to them, but that would actually maybe be kind of interesting, you know? So yeah, it's a case-by-case basis with that sort of stuff. Throughout this season of Hacker Valley Blue, we've been talking to a lot of people in cybersecurity about fundamentals and what is essential in cybersecurity. And in my belief, to even gain experience on the fundamentals, there is that level of performing, that performing of maybe telling a story like you're talking about or teaching someone. And when I first met you, I came to you and I said, hey, I want to learn how to tell better stories in my personal life and in work. So what are some of the stories that you can share that you've had with organizations or individuals for people who just don't feel like they have that ability to tell stories and and capture that skill of, you know, doubling down on on telling what it is that they want to speak about? One of the first gigs that I ever did, one of the first corporate workshops I ever did was for a place that, where you can buy sunglasses. And they wanted their employees to be able to speak with more um, nuance and more emotion and more flair and all that about brands of sunglasses. And we got together and, and we had a bunch of sunglasses out and we had different brands, you know, Chanel, Prada, whatever, you know, these were all like really good designs for sunglasses and all that. And early on in the workshop, a woman got up with a pair of Chanel sunglasses and she started just talking about like data about the sunglasses, you know, or little bits of history about uh, how they were selling and all that kind of thing. And I stopped her and I said, wait a minute, do these sunglasses like do they, does this brand remind you of anyone in your life? And she was like, oh my God, Chanel, are you kidding me? This reminds me of my mother and especially how my mother like couldn't afford like Chanel sort of stuff when uh, I was younger, but was always kind of like working her way toward being able to and putting stuff together that like would pass as a Chanel sort of look until then. And how I really learned from her to, you know, it's all about how you hold yourself and, and how you put it all together with creativity to ultimately fake it till you make it. And before you know it, like people had tears in their eyes. And I realized right then, see, this is the thing. If you want to express anything about, like in a storytelling for business, in a storytelling for any sort of corporate purpose, it's always important to have human beings in mind. It's always Mm -hmm. important to think, hmm, who were the people involved in this initiative or this project? And what were their values? Like what what inspired them or, or what were they worried about? You know, instead of just focusing on stuff like data and, you know, details about processes and stuff like that. So another time I did a, a workshop for an insurance company and they were trying to express that they actually kind of bond quite a lot with their clients because they were insurance for like big, big homes, like expensive estates. And as I was talking through it with them, they were like, yeah, yeah, we're trying to get across that. We really like form relationships 
with our clients. And I said, well, then maybe the controlling idea of everyone's stories in the room today should be, if you're a client of ours, you're like family. And they were like, that's exactly it. So everyone told a story about some experience they'd had in their time working there with a client where they kind of came to feel like that person was family to them. And it just made everything that day feel so much like I was like, I was sold by the end of the day. I was like, this is a great company. (laughs) You've been using their insurance ever since. (laughs) Right right, for my one bedroom in Bed-Stuy. That's incredible. I took a podcasting course a couple months ago at this point by Ira Glass. And one of the biggest things that I took away from that course was uh, when you're talking about a podcast episode or even a podcast series is to look at it as this podcast or series is about X, but it's interesting because of Y. So we almost have to have this like selective process as to what is an interesting story or what makes a story interesting, whether it's from our life or telling a story to a board, like it, it all kind of blends together. So what piece of advice would you have for selecting the stories to tell and how they are interesting to folks? Well, that's fabulous. Like if you're telling a story for business purposes, you kind of want to have a good idea beforehand of, okay, what point do I want to make ultimately with this story? First, you got to have that in mind, that controlling idea in mind first, because at a bar, just with friends, you might launch into, or in a therapy session, for example, you might launch into a story about something, and you might not know where you're going with it. You you might be like, well, this thing happened, and it's bugging me, and I I don't know what to make of it. And that's great. That's an important use of story. But in a corporate setting, you want to have it in mind already, okay, I'm going to tell a story. And here's the point I want people to walk away with from the story. Then you start thinking, wait, what are some kind of emotional instances where I feel like that happened, where where, where that thing I want to prove happened? Because the real key to any story, like what Ira Glass was getting at before, is There are people with values and needs and desires and shifting emotions involved in any story. You got to make it about the people. And like when you're thinking back on brainstorming on what stories would I want to tell from my career, it's good to think, okay, well, what were the times that I was most inspired or like nervous or really frustrated? or like bewildered, you know, like, like thinking in terms of times when you were really emotionally invested and your emotions were kind of surprising you or getting the best of you or something like that. And then looking back at, oh yeah, but the the way we solved that problem actually proves this little point I want to make, you know, Uh, for a perfect like example of Uh, storytelling for business sort of thing is Steve Jobs, the graduation speech. I think it was for Stanford University where he had to give the keynote at their graduation. And he starts it off by saying, there's really three lessons that mean the most to me in my career. And he names all three of them. And all three of them are like 
three word phrases like follow the leader or whatever. I, I don't remember the exact phrases, but he names them. And then he goes through them one by one. He's like, okay, so follow the leader. Well, when I was a freshman in college at yada yada, and he tells a little story, and then it proves that it ends with that same controlling idea again. But what keeps us so involved in his story is that he's very clear about why he was so emotional about that thing that happened to him that proved that point, you know? Another thing he does in that graduation speech is he admits to having made mistakes. This is another thing that in storytelling for business, people often think, I'm just supposed to like brag about all my successes or whatever. But people often find it more compelling when you admit, you know, man, I was down in the dumps. I didn't know what I, what I was going to do. I, I really kind of dropped the ball here. But then, and then you transcended it somehow. So yeah, it's... First, thinking up that controlling idea, then thinking back on emotional moments you've been through that actually seem to prove that idea. Have you taken a story that had good bones, but you really had to engineer it in order to be palatable for someone's ears? Could you walk us through a story where you had to kind of engineer that story for someone to get them ready for your show? The biggest thing is to get a person to understand, don't just summarize, don't just walk us through a Wikipedia, like where you're just giving us a broad overview and you're explaining. It's important to like remember sensory details that will help us see almost like movie scenes what was happening between people. So very often, like I remember once this, this fella came to us with a story where he was trying to cross the world in a rowboat and he got to somewhere near Indonesia and he had a stroke. So he's laying on his back in this boat. He can't move. He's had a stroke and he's paralyzed in this boat. And the boat gets boarded by pirates. One of the pirates has like a nine-year-old boy with him, right? And the nine-year-old boy, you know, they're raiding the boat and everything, and they're stealing whatever he has. And then the nine-year-old boy says, shouldn't, the guy seems hurt. Shouldn't we take him to the shore? So they take him to the shore and just leave him on the beach. And to me, this was just like, oh my gosh, the most incredible story ever. But the guy just could not seem to understand that we need the details. We need the sensory details. Like, oh, what did it feel like to be baking in the sun when you couldn't move? And, you know, uh, what did it feel like in your chest when you realized, oh my gosh, it's being boarded? What did they sound like? Did they sound dangerous, angry, you know? Like all of the color comes into a story when you remember the way that someone spoke or, or, or the expression in their face or, or something that happened in your body or actual dialogue spoken out loud. When you remember those sensory details like sight, sound, smell, taste, bodily sensations and thinking mind kind of stuff like dialogue or, or dialogue in your own head, that 
is what brings the story alive. So that's a good case right there of where the bones of the story were incredible. Like that's just on paper, an incredible overview of a story, but it's not going to work unless you can fill in all those sensory details that bring it alive and make it emotional for us. That was actually one of the most impactful things that uh, you taught me throughout our lessons was using those scenic details. Ever since then, I've always tried to like include where I was at. What was the atmosphere like around me? Was it hot? Was it cold? Even what time of the day was it? It was middle of the night and all of a sudden this happened and really help the listeners or the whoever's participating in the story lean in a bit. But one of the things I didn't want to get too far away from was comedy. I think that comedy is another great tool for telling stories. I personally love any story that can make me laugh. I'm sure anyone listening can relate to that. <laughs> what are some good tools that you have up your tool belt for introducing comedy into your stories? You can have jokes included, even in a story that takes a turn and becomes like, really serious or really emotional you know like you can like as long as you're not doing the jokey joking around like in the midst of the most serious or emotional part you can start off and kind of warm people up a little bit by making a little self-deprecating comment about yourself people usually like if you can joke about your own imperfections, or if you can like have an attitude of lightness toward some of what what you're attacking here, so that we don't get the impression that you are pompous or being indulgent, you know, like, oh, my, my opinion matters so much. But if you come at it a little bit like joking around a little bit about how we're all human and uh, sometimes I've been in over my head and here's an example of that and then walking us through it it helps us feel a lot more like oh yeah I, I, I like this guy I would enjoy kind of hanging out with this guy he's more uh, approachable than someone who might be trying to you know, front or make a big pretentious display of being this way or that way. You know, we're talking about storytelling, we're talking about comedy, and there seems to be a little bit of a recipe, even though there's so many different ways you can put things together. But there's elements of a good story, there are elements of good comedy. What would you say are your favorite tenets of telling good stories and telling good comedy? Oftentimes in stories, if you workshop a story a little bit by sharing it with a couple of friends first, you will find natural funniness in the story. Uh, because like oftentimes just kind of like trying to be authentic and trying to like really uh, be true to what you're communicating about will lead to like little natural ways that things seem kind of funny or curious and friends might react to those things. And when they do, you can be like, oh yeah, that got a good little moment of levity out of everyone. I can remember to kind of try to hit that way again. You know, one of the things that stand-ups do is 
the, you know, a, a typical stand-up, like, say, in New York City, will, like, book, like, three gigs, well, I mean, not during pandemic times, but during regular times, will book, like, three gigs a night. So they'll go tell a story or do a stand-up set at one place, and then an hour later, they're supposed to do it somewhere else, and then an hour later, somewhere else. And the reason they do that is to start to get this feel for, ah, yeah, yeah, see, when I kept this part a little bit shorter and then kind of like put in a zinger right here, they really like that. And it starts to become muscle memory of, oh, yeah, yeah, I like the rhythms of this seem to work a certain way that's funny to people. So trying stuff out on friends who don't mind if you screw up here or there is always a great way to be working on a story it's also important to remember stories are very flexible you can shorten them you can lengthen them you you can even arrive at different controlling ideas if you want you know like because life is multifaceted so one story might mean something in a different context you know you might tell a 5 minute version of a story over drinks with a client, and then you might tell a 10-minute version of that story in an official presentation, but you might be arriving at a different idea from the story because of, you know, it reminds you of different things. So, yeah, I would say that, you know, as long as you keep in mind that your story should be mostly about people who have emotions and that the way the story shakes out should kind of feel like it exemplifies or proves something, then you're on the right track, you know? From there, you, you work up a, a first draft. And often what I'll do is instead of writing it down first, you know, like sitting down at a keyboard and typing it out, I'll just record myself telling it. I might record myself telling it to an actual friend or pretending I'm talking to a friend with no one there. And then I'll like listen back to that recording and jot down what seemed to be working because we have this tendency to like write like we're back in junior high and high school and college, <laughs> like writing essays, you know? And people can tell when something sounds like I don't know, literary syntax, you know, it doesn't sound like conversation. So making the first draft of your story just like a recording that you make on, on your iPhone or whatever is a great way to get a first version out of you. Then you can listen back and say, oh, this part's kind of awkward. I should just like skip through this part here. Or, oh, wait a minute, I could have made this part more scenic by including like the look on someone's face and what they actually said instead of just summarizing, you know, the gist of it, you know? So yeah, I think that, that like keeping in mind that stories are conversation, you know, stories are, are like uh, engage the, you, you want to keep people engaged. And so working on stories by actually trying them out on people along the way is going to be really helpful at like finding little funny spots and stuff like that. I couldn't agree more with that. And I've done that a lot with Chris. We uh, before the pandemic, we went on this speaking tour where we were giving keynotes and presentations all across the country. And I noticed in the very beginning of this journey, and this was also kind of in the beginning of my journey of trying to become more of a storyteller, was when I got on stage for the first few times, I had everything mapped out. 
And then there was this moment where my mind just turned off. Luckily for me, I was able to turn it back on and keep going. But, you know, I think that's where the improv comes out. And you have to kind of improvise and work your way through it. What are some of the things that you tell yourself or even people that you help coach to improvise those moments where their mind might turn off? You know, I was talking before about how when my sketch comedy group broke up when I was 26 years old, uh, I had been in a group where there was always someone to catch you if you fell. Like a big part of improv is someone makes a mistake. Someone else sees that that mistake can be framed as a joke. You know what I mean? Like, like so there's always teammates to to pick the ball back up. But once I was on my own, there was this theater called Luna Lounge in 1996, which was like the central place where Dave Chappelle and Amy Poehler and uh, just Sarah Silverman, just everyone who's anyone now <laughs> was doing stuff there, uh, Mark Marin. And so I got up on stage to do a monologue. I had written this character monologue where I was supposed to be basically kind of like a Charles Manson kind of guy. And I got to the end of the first paragraph and I had memorized this thing to the nth degree. I'd been memorizing it all weekend long. Got to the end of the first paragraph and forgot where I was. I just blanked out. So I'm staring at the audience and they're staring at me and I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? So I, I decided to start over. I just went right back to the very beginning of the monologue and repeated it. And at this point, I think they were like, what is going on? This is like some sort of abstract, like Samuel Beckett play or something like that. Like, didn't he just say this? And I got to the same point and blanked out again. <laughs> mm. And I, I was trying to talk to the host, which was uh, Jeff Ross was the host that night. He was the um, he, you often see him on uh, comedy roast shows. But anyway, I turned to Jeff and I said, I can't do this. And I started to flee the theater. Uh, and, and the only way to flee the theater, because uh, this is incredibly ridiculous. It's 1996 and, 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 and alternative comedy was not very well established yet. So we're literally in this punk rock dive bar and there are no seats. So everyone's sitting like cross-legged on the floor. So I have to literally walk over the audience. I have to walk in between their legs and feet. I have to like, like kind of like I'm like walking through a cactus field, like step over people to get out of the theater. And the audience thinks I'm joking. They're like, this is so insane. He must be joking. This must be like an Andy Kaufman routine. So they, they start going, no, you can do it. Do it, do it, do it. They had heard me say, I can't do this. I had only meant for Jeff Ross to hear that. So I'm like, oh my God, tears are starting to come out of my eyes. Oh, I'm like, wow. no, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. So that's when they start body surfing me. <laughs> They just <laughs> grab my feet. And it's the funniest thing because body serving is incredibly bizarre when everyone's sitting. You know what I mean? Like, like you're so near the ground already that it's you're just kind of bobbing like blah, blah, blah. your your face is practically in people's crotches and everything. And so 
they kind of body surfed me back up on the stage. And at that point I realized, well, I have no choice. I've, I've got, they think I can do this. So I guess I can do this. And sure enough, I remembered the rest of the monologue. And it was so funny because there was a, a Hollywood agent there that night. And he said that you were the best of everyone who performed tonight and stupid me. I don't know how to like lie sometimes. So I was just like, no, you don't understand. That wasn't an act. I like <laughs> was trying to get out of here. I didn't think I could do it. And he laughed and he said, well, then you've been through the actor's nightmare. You know, you've experienced the worst that it can get and you lived through it and did great. And, you know, it's interesting. I look back at that now and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, no, the real lesson there is that there's always someone to catch you if you fall. Like my whole feeling of, uh, oh, I'm, I'm up here all alone now. You know, I'm not I'm no longer with my group where someone can make a joke if a mistake happens. No, like the audience was there to catch me if I fell, like literally. And. Now I realize, holy cow, if I blank out, I can sometimes just flat out acknowledge that to the audience. I can say, uh, you know what, wait, what, what was I just saying? Or just go back a little bit and repeat something, you know, like sometimes just flat out let people know, wait a minute, I forget where I was going with that. Or even just like look at someone in the audience and riff a little bit on like, how they're doing to, in order to kind of acknowledge, hey, we are in a conversation here because it, it would be very typical in a normal conversation to be like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, shoot. Wait, where was I? You know, and, and it might sound super unprofessional, but if you're not too nervous about it, you can do that sort of thing. And the audience will actually help you out a lot of the time, you know, to think of it a little bit more like being in conversation rather than being up there all alone. That's an incredible story. And I'm sure inspiring for a lot of people that have that fear of getting up on stage and having that conversation with the audience. What There's someone listening right now that they feel like they don't have any stories to tell. They don't feel like they can tell the story of their business, of their team, of their project. What piece of advice would you have for that person that just doesn't feel like they have it in them to tell that story? You know, I would say that everyone has many, many, many stories. Like we tell ourselves stories in order to make any sense of our day-to-day -day lives. And we tell our friends stories on a regular basis. Even when we're dreaming, you know, when we're not even conscious, we're formulating bits of narrative in our minds. So it's important to remember that you have had life experiences where you were inspired or where you were really nervous or you were embarrassed or you had a little bit of a eureka moment or um, you, you worked really hard on accomplishing something or you got out of some situation. So it's really a matter of kind of honoring that and realizing, no, 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 come on now. I have been through some stuff and accomplished some stuff and I've had some feelings along the way. It's those feelings that are going to be the key to it all. Risk my podcast, those tend to be very high stakes sort of stories where 
you know, a person really felt like they, they were in harm's way or, uh, you know, something super unusual happened to them. So a lot of people say, oh, I don't know if I have any stories that are right for risk. And I'll say, well, actually, it's not. You don't have to have fallen off of Mount Everest or been attacked by sharks or something. It's more, can you think of a time that I was especially emotionally wound up, you know, a gal once shared a story on risk about how she had terrible crushing social anxiety in junior high. And she really tracked it that she had said almost not a word to anyone unless she was spoken to by a teacher during all of junior high. And then it came time to be, you know, the final day of eighth grade. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm out of here. I made it. I didn't have to talk to anyone or do anything. And then the teacher was like, OK, since today's the last day, we're just going to play a game of charades. And she was like terrified. She was like, no. <laughs> so she had to get up and perform charades for everyone. And that was the high stakes of the story. Now, now, you know, to someone like me, charades is like, that super, super low stakes sort of incident. But she was able to like communicate to us how much social anxiety she had. So we, the listeners, were like, oh, okay, yeah, that was a big deal for her. So I'm nervous for her as I'm listening to this story. So it's often really just a case of focusing on, no, no, what meant a lot to me while I was going through it? Because if you can convey that, then it'll start to mean a lot to whoever you're talking to. Perfect advice. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing the mics with us today. This was a true honor. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, your podcast, your book, and your, your new projects, what are the best ways that people can do that? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. My podcast is at Risk Show. Uh, and Risk can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, the Story Studio, my school, is at thestorystudio.org. And my podcast will be coming up with a new podcast soon of stories that are still very meaningful, but are okay to listen to when the kids are in the car. (laughs) (laughs) That show is going to be called Real. So that's all coming soon. All right. Well, I would highly recommend everyone to tune in to the Risk podcast and hear some interesting stories and definitely check out the Story School. That's actually how I how I met and found you, Kevin. Really appreciate the time and we'll see everyone next time. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 